Good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. Glad you're with me because we've got an hour ahead of us to talk about one of the most important themes of Catholic life. And it's the, what we sometimes call about, uh, call ecumenism. Uh, I prefer to say Christian unity. And uh, certainly since the Second Vatican Council, there has been, uh, at least among some Catholics, an impassioned commitment to do whatever is possible within their sphere of influence to help restore uh, solidarity among uh, all Christians, all the baptized, all those who have exercised faith in Christ and been united to him in baptism. This, of course, goes back to uh, Jesus' prayer in the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John, uh, verse 20 and verse 21, where he prays that his disciples uh, would be one, even as he and the Father are one. And he also ties, um, in some way, the success of our evangelistic efforts to this ability to remain one. So I pray not only for them, but for also for those who will believe in me. Not pray not only for those who have believed, but for those who will believe through the word of his followers, so that they may all be one as your Father are in me and I in you, that they also may be one uh, in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, that the world may believe that you sent me, that the world may believe that you sent me. Christian unity was an evidence that Father had sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Uh, Last uh, January, I came across a talk by Dr. Mary Healy on this question of evangelism, and uh, Mary's joined us many times on this program before. Uh, Not only is she a great scholar, but I count her as a great friend. She's professor of sacred scripture, Sacred Heart Major Seminary, general editor of the Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture, and the author of two of the volumes there, A Letter to the Hebrews and also The Gospel of Mark. She's also the author of Men and Women Are from Eden, a wonderful study of John Paul II's Theology of the Body. She serves on the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity and was appointed by Pope Francis to the Pontifical Biblical Commission. Mary, it's great to have you here again. Thanks. Thanks, Al. It's great to be with you again. Talk to me about uh, this. You spoke uh, in January. What was the setting for this talk on Christian unity? Yeah, the setting was the Encounter Conference, and it gathers Catholics from all over the country and even some foreign countries to uh, be equipped to evan- by, uh, by the Holy Spirit to evangelize in the Holy Spirit using his gifts and charisms. And many Protestant Christians have also been interested, and some attended the conference. Uh, two of them spoke at the conference. Mm-hmm. And uh, Patrick, the director of Encounter Ministries, realized the need to prepare Catholics for that and help understand why we have uh, speakers from Christian traditions other than our own speaking mm-hmm. at this conference. And so he asked me to give a talk on Christian unity. And um, as I prepared for that talk, I, I was stirred up in my own zeal yeah. for promoting and being committed to restoring unity in the body of Christ. I mean, I've always had a, a commitment to that, but mm-hmm. I, I was really rekindled in that zeal and 
meditating on the passage that you just read, John 17, mm-hmm. I, I came to see in a deeper way, this, this is the last thing Jesus prayed before he died. Yeah. I mean, how yeah. much closer to the center of his heart can you get? Right. He right. prayed to the Father that his followers would be one. And to not take that seriously or to be indifferent to Christian unity is, is really to dishonor the prayer of Christ on the night before he died. So, uh, so I wanted to exhort Catholics, especially because there were mostly Catholics at that conference, mm-hmm. to, um, to realize that as Pope John Paul II said, it's, uh, being ecumenical and contributing in some way to the cause for unity is not optional for right. Catholics. Right. It's a solemn duty for Catholics. We're all called to share in, a, share in that, that work, each in accord with our own gifts, our own responsibility and sphere of influence, but none of us can be indifferent to the scandal of Christian disunity. When I, when I was growing up in New, New Haven, Connecticut, a Catholic kid, not especially well-instructed at all, I can remember not being able to go into my best friend's church. Uh, my best friend, Wayne Sanford, who, by the way, is a permanent deacon in the Catholic Church now. But when he was growing up, he was uh, attended a Congregationalist church, I think. And I can remember being told I couldn't go in his church building. Now, I don't know if that was Catholic teaching or if that was just a, a kid's remembrance of some teaching that I didn't understand. But do you know... Well, I mean, it was. It was Catholic teaching before that. That was. Okay. All right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what happened in... Go ahead. Well, um, it's funny you mentioned growing up in Connecticut, which, as you know, I also, I also did grow up yep. in Connecticut. And um, I was in a you know, pretty fairly Catholic environment. I went to Catholic school for some years. But um, interestingly, my own commitment to ecumenism began when I, I spent a summer at a, summer, a Protestant summer camp um, very Bible-oriented, prayer-oriented, yeah. lots of fun as well. <laughs> and I went on a wilderness trip uh, on which the, the main counselor was a Protestant, and we, we happened to be in a canoe together, canoeing across Lake Winnipesaukee all day. <laughs> and I was only 13 years old, but he, he started challenging me in my Catholic faith for the first time, and I started you know, defending my Catholic faith, <laughs> and it actually strengthened my Catholic faith as I, for the first time in my life, had to you know, kind of think through certain issues. Wow. Yeah. But at the same time, it gave me a, a great appreciation for Protestant brothers and sisters, because I, I saw their love for Scripture. I saw their um, the way they inculcated a life of, of devotions, of prayers every day for the kids at the camp. You know, you spend your time with Jesus and, and read Scripture and, and listen to the voice of the Lord. So, um, so that experience gave me already... A, you know, beginning desire for unity. But as you said, Catholics were not allowed to attend Protestant churches. Many Protestants also would have been horrified at the idea of attending a Catholic church. Sure, sure. And, uh, er, you know, early in the 20th century, the only idea of ecumenism we had was come home to Rome, period. Yeah. And the only idea that a Protestant would have of, of unity is leave the whore of Babylon, which is a Catholic <laughs> church, period. Right, right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And the Holy Spirit has brought us a long way since then, but there's a long way still to go. You you have a, a way, you know, as you understand history, I think it's it's really fascinating, because you see a convergence between 
Well, the work of the Holy Spirit in both the Second Vatican Council and then what we commonly call the charismatic renewal subsequent to the council. But actually, you even tie it back earlier into the century. Um, mm-hmm. So, why don't you just? Yes. So, I, I so if I would ask, well, why did Catholics all of a sudden, at the, the level of an ecumenical council, decide they needed a decree on Christian unity and ecumenism? What led to that? Yes, well, it, it really was a work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, began in the 19th century among Protestant denominations, um, and then began uh, among some Catholics in the early 20th century. But uh, a, a key piece to that story, which many people don't know, and uh, which I recounted in my talk, but because I, I just I think this story is such an amazing sign of the providence of God at work behind the events of history is that in the late 19th century, there was an Italian nun named Sister Elena Guerra. She's now Blessed Elena Guerra, who uh, recognized that the Church had, to some degree, neglected the Holy Spirit. And later theologians, like even uh, Cardinal Congar, acknowledged that. The Holy Mm -hmm. Spirit had become the forgotten person of the Trinity. Mm -hmm. And so Sister Elena began to write letters to the Pope, saying, uh, I believe God is telling me to tell you, Your Holiness, that He wants renewed devotion to the Holy Spirit in the Church. And amazingly enough, Pope Leo XIII listened to her. Maybe he had read his Catholic history, (laughs) and he knew that when obscure Italian nuns write letters to the Pope in the name of God (laughs) telling them what to do, they ought to listen. (laughs) So he did, and he, uh, he wrote... An encyclical to the Holy Spirit. He, he, he then wrote a second encyclical, sorry, on the Holy Spirit, and wrote a second encyclical on the Holy Spirit. And in this encyclical, he asked all the bishops of the Church to pray a solemn novena to the Holy Spirit uh, between the Feast of the Ascension and, the Pente- and Pentecost, which is the original novena, nine days of prayer, going right mm-hmm. back to the birth of the Church. And, and interestingly enough, the intention that he asked them to pray for was Christian unity. And this was at a time when ecumenism was not, it was not a vocabulary word for either Catholics or Protestants or right. Orthodox. Right. It was not right. on the radar at all for the vast majority of, of Catholics and other Christians. But he, he asked them to pray for that unity, that intention. And uh, sadly, many of the bishops um, simply didn't respond to that plea. Mm. And and Sister Elena wrote to the Pope again, and she asked him to um, dedicate the 20th century to the Holy Spirit. And wow. he did, as, as she had requested, on the very first day of the century, January 1st, 1901, he prayed, Veni Creator Spiritus, the ancient <laughs> hymn to the Holy Spirit, in the name of the whole Church, invoking the Holy Spirit over the 20th century, begging for the Holy Spirit to, to in some way, take possession of that century. And wow. little did he know, surely he never knew to, to the last day of his life, that it just so happened that that very day in Topeka, Kansas, there was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on this, this little obscure Bible school <laughs> that had right. been reading about Pentecost right. and the Acts of the Apostles and saying, why don't we see in the Church today the things that we see in Acts? And they've been praying and praying. And that same day, when Pope Leo prayed for the Holy Spirit to be poured out on the Church, he was poured out in this little Bible school in Topeka, Kansas. 
And the story doesn't end there because from there, a man named William Seymour, who interestingly was a son of slaves, mm-hmm. uh, his parents were slaves freed after the Civil War, brought that same outpouring of the Holy Spirit from Topeka to Azusa Street, Los Angeles, from where it spread throughout the entire world. Wow. And, and today, that movement of the Holy Spirit, that revival in the Holy Spirit, is by far the largest and fastest growing movement in, in the history of the Church, in, yeah. in terms of uh, you know, recognizable movement of the Holy Spirit. Today, some six or seven hundred million Christians are baptized in the Holy Spirit and would identify themselves in some way with the, what happened beginning at Azusa Street and Topeka. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's just so fascinating that that you know behind the scenes there's the Pope yeah. who, who is yeah. the rock on which Jesus founded his church, mm-hmm. praying for a, a Holy Spirit uh, moment in in the 20th century, and lo and behold, God does it. But he he didn't do it first and foremost in the Catholic Church, and then of course that raises the question: Why, you know, why why didn't the Lord do it in the Catholic Church since it was the Pope who prayed that? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, nobody knows, but I, I have a couple uh, reasons that I would speculate. Yeah, go um, ahead. I mean, I don't mind know. speculation as long as we recognize that's what we're <laughs> <Yeah>. doing. <laughs> yeah, right. what do you think? Uh, one, as as the Pope recognized, the vast majority of bishops around the world did not heed his call. Yeah, okay. They n- ignored it for whatever reasons. And Scripture tells us, and, and history shows us, that it's possible to miss a visitation from God. Yeah. It's possible to miss something that God is doing. Yeah. The Holy Spirit is moving, and we can actually miss that that chance, that grace, as it's being given because we're preoccupied with our own agenda. And so, so I think the Church may have missed an opportunity for grace at that moment. In many ways, it wasn't ready. In, in many ways, as Pope Benedict said, the Church had become too heavily uh, sociologically focused, institutionally focused, too rigid yep. in, in the way it understood the institution. Mm-hmm. And, so, uh, and so that movement began among the, the, the Protestants, and, and they were, for the most part, originally kicked out of their churches. Those who, who were filled That's with true. the Holy Spirit began to yeah. use the gift of tongues. You know, they were kicked out of their churches. That's right. But That's I think right. maybe another reason why it didn't begin in the Catholic Church, in the providence of God, is that God knew that if this began in the Catholic Church, the chances that Protestants would ever accept it were just about nil. That's a good point. The fact that it began among Protestants, and then the Catholic Church actually embraced what was going on, not embracing any kind of false doctrine, but embracing the movement of the Holy Spirit as Catholics came to be touched by this. The Church, the Pope's many national bishops' conferences, wrote very positively about this renewal in the Holy Spirit, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, recognizing it as an act of God. And, and I think that was largely because of Vatican Council II and the, the amazing movement of the Holy Spirit that occurred at that council, um, really a rediscovery of, of the Church's roots, a rediscovery of certain things that had been neglected, including the charismatic dimension of the Church, Yes, uh, Pope yes. John Paul II said, you know, rediscovering the, the charismatic dimension is co-essential to the Church, along yeah. with the institutional and hierarchical dimension. So 
so you know, it's just fascinating to look back over history and see how even when human beings only saw the, the tiniest little piece of what was going on, God was at work in, in, in the, his divine you know, chess, moving chess pieces around the board yes. and, and preparing for the fulfillment of his purposes that the body of Christ would become one. I think that's a great that's way of looking Lord. at it. I think that's beautiful. And it, it also took time. So it must learn patience in these things. Hold it there, Mary. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Mary Healy, Professor of Sacred Scripture at Sacred Heart Major Seminary. She's also been appointed by Pope Francis to the Pontifical Biblical Commission and serves on the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity. Unity, Christian unity is our, our topic uh, right here in history, the head in heaven, the body on earth. Jesus is still Lord, he's king, and he's achieving his will uh, through members of his body. Unfortunately, you can look around the world and you can see that evangelism, the sharing of the gospel, is often hampered because of the evident discord and division among Christian bodies out there. I can remember uh, within the first year of my beginning to do Catholic radio, I spoke to uh, an evangelical Protestant uh, missionary. Actually, he held some institutional position of authority uh, for Southeast Asia. And I can remember just asking him, without thinking much about it, I asked him, what do you think is the greatest impediment to the spread of the gospel in Southeast Asia? And he said to me, there's no doubt it's the division among Christians. He wasn't just talking about differences between Catholics and Protestants. He was talking about differences among so many competing Protestant groups as well. But his recognition that disunity and division was an impediment to successful missionary activity was echoed by, uh, well, actually probably originated with John Paul II in Ut Unum Sint, his encyclical, uh, which is 25 years old, uh, as of this past month. This is a follow-up to Creon Ecumenism from the Second Vatican Council. Mary, John Paul II seems to have taken this call for unity more seriously than uh, maybe any previous pope since maybe Leo back in the turn of the, into the 20th century. Is he a doctor of ecumenism, mm-hmm. John Paul II? That's a good term for him. Yes, he certainly had a passion for unity in the body of Christ, and, and perhaps that came in part from his own experience of uh, the Second World War and uh, the incredible devastation that ethnic racial disunity brought in yeah. throughout Europe and the world. Um, he grew up in Poland, which is a you know almost entirely Catholic country, and yet he had a sensitivity to 
other Christians, including the Russian Orthodox, mm-hmm. who uh, you know are not always in friendly relationships with Polish people. Right, right. And uh, German Lutherans, who also are not always in friendly relationships, to say the least, with Poles. Mm-hmm. But um, but John Paul II, I think it really came from his own life of prayer and his own mysticism. He recognized that disunity is it wounds the heart of God and is a very strong counter witness to the gospel. Because here we are going out to proclaim Christ died to gather into one the scattered children of God. And at the very same time, we are in competition and rivalry with other Christian missionaries. Yeah. Or even if it's not explicitly in rivalry, uh, once people start to believe in the gospel and be catechized, they recognize there are all these differences over very, very significant matters of doctrine, mm-hmm. as well as all of these, these historical memories of, of hurts right. and, and, and real offenses perpetrated against one another. So Pope John Paul II um, really made extraordinary efforts, and in in that encyclical, he he talks about how ecumenism is a duty of every Catholic. He in his his own office as Pope, as successor of Peter, he actually invites theologians of other Christian traditions to dialogue with him and re envision how the, the, the Pope can exercise his Petrine ministry, which is an amazingly courageous invitation. Right. Now, right. Obviously, he's not talking about compromising anything essential to Catholic doctrine. Right, he says that explicitly, yeah. That, yeah, he says that explicitly. He's recognizing that part of the, the ways that the papacy has been exercised are accidents of history, or, or they're product of history, mm-hmm. and right. they're not unchangeable. Some of them need to be changed. Right. It's hard to see how and in what way. And he, he's actually inviting Orthodox and Protestant theologians to say something about that and dialogue with him. And, and some of them did take up that call over the next few years. There were papers written and there were symposiums held and, and, and there was some theological dialogue. Unfortunately, I don't think a lot of it has happened recently, mm-hmm. but there's very, very much a need for it, an urgent need for it. Some... And then it was uh, only a few years later, after this um, encyclical on Christian unity, that uh, a really historic thing happened, which was the joint declaration on the doctrine of justification yeah. between Lutherans and Catholics, right. in which we essentially came to, if, if not full agreement on what justification in Christ is, at least very close to agreement, and essentially recognizing that our differences are no longer church-dividing. Right. We, we no longer have to be divided over this doctrine that was right at the heart, the root of the Protestant Reformation. It so was that, that's Luther, an amazing thing. Luther called the material principle of the Reformation, justification by faith alone. I mean, that, that's yeah. amazing yeah. that uh, the Lutheran World Federation can now look at uh, Catholic teaching on uh, justification by faith, and Catholics can look upon the Lutheran World Federation and find out that, uh, well, again, there's some nuance in in language and things, yet it's no longer uh, 
no longer needs to be regarded as a church dividing doctrine. Now, right, that's right. that's in the fair that's in the area of uh, formal um, ecumenical activity. That's something that well, you're on the pontifical council, you know, for uh, Christian unity, promoting Christian unity. So you you would be involved. You could be involved in this formal stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, most mm-hmm. of us aren't going to be involved in you know reaching formal doctrinal agreement between large Christian bodies. Um, our mm-hmm. efforts at ecumenism uh, are more more modest and more immediate. Um, Mm-hmm. Where should we begin? Uh, uh, certainly, I know yeah. I know you well enough, and I know John Paul II well enough to know being ecumenical doesn't mean giving away the store. It doesn't mean... Well. It sure doesn't. No, and it's pr- precisely because of that misunderstanding of ecumenism, that uh, really a kind of lowest kind of lowest common denominator ecumenism, that many people pulled back from it. Right. Right. Because they saw that Catholic doctrine and Catholic devotion was being compromised in some places. Yep. You know, people yep. would feel that they, they're no longer going to talk about Mary, the mother of God, because it might offend Protestants. Right. No, that's, right. it's not the right approach. We have to learn to talk about our Catholic doctrines and our deeply loved devotions and our saints and, and the whole magnificent edifice that we have of of Catholicism, we have to learn to talk about it when we're talking to other Christians, non-Catholic Christians, in a way that helps them understand it better and insofar as possible avoids offending them. It is possible to do that. It's hard work, but it is possible to do that. But I would also say that um, despite the great achievement of the Joint Declaration on Justification and some of the other theological dialogues, there have been some great achievements. I think we started to get a recognition that they were not producing the very real, visible unity that we had hoped. Right. You know, there was a kind right. of unrealistic optimism that if we just hammer out these doctrines, get some good theologians together at the table, and hammer out the differences and understand each other better, we'll be fine. We'll, we'll be able to be one again. And now there's a, a better realism recognizing, you know, Far, far more needs to happen. Well, and as important as the doctrinal differences are, what is equally or perhaps even more important is is the heart, the yes. change of heart, the conversion that needs to take place. And that's what Pope John Paul II spoke about a lot in in that letter Ut Unum Sent. He talked about the, the ecumenism of prayer and the ecumenism of conversion that we all need a conversion of heart, conversion of attitudes. There, there's attitudes of, of blindness, of judgmentalism, of arrogance, of a uh, sense of superiority, mm-hmm. um, a divisiveness. Sometimes we're not even aware of it. And, and besides all of that, even attitudes that are, that are simply worldly that can scandalize other Christians. And, and I'm sure you you probably know this better than I do, that sometimes when Protestants become Catholic, for example, and they they become a regular member of a parish, they find it a painful experience because they find so many Catholics who are not really interiorly converted <laughs> no, and, and right. don't understand themselves as disciples of Jesus. 
and who speak and act and make choices just the same way you would see in a secular person. Mm-hmm. And, and that can be scandalizing and discouraging. Yeah. So, you know, how can we how can we contribute to ecumenism if you're if you're not a theologian? You can make the most important contribution by praying first and foremost for Christian unity, but also asking the Holy Spirit to do in you that that work of deep inner conversion and holiness. And, and then the book also talks about fellowship, the, commun- the ecumenism of fellowship, and that's the aspect that Pope Francis has also really emphasized, relational ecumenism. Yeah. You can accomplish a lot by forming friendships with people, yeah. and you get yeah. to know them, and you recognize, this is my brother in Christ, this is my sister in Christ, and yeah. what we have in common is far greater than what divides us, and... I love to see how grace is operative in him or her, and I love to hear how he or she talks about their prayer life or about um, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or about redemption in Christ. And, And all of that breaks down walls. It destroys barriers, and it it accomplishes so much more than simply intellectual dialogue. Amen. Mary, hold it there. We'll come back on the other side. I want to talk about the Holy Spirit as the principle of unity throughout Scripture and in our lives. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. In uh, Veni Sancte Spiritus, uh, the Pentecost sequence, we um, sing, Bend the stubborn heart and will. Melt the frozen, warm the chill. Guide the steps that go astray. Um, beautiful words. Also, troubling words. Uh, if you've tried to ever work for Christian unity. Um, I love looking back to St. Paul, though, in the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians, where he actually gives us, I think, the kind of teaching that helps to create an environment in which unity can exist and really uh, at least unity can be held up as a plausible future. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, he writes, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Um, It's not so much a program that's needed, but an atmosphere, an environment. Um, The that deals with the sum total of all the social, spiritual, and relational attitudes and factors in the groups, Christian groups of which we are part. Talking about Christian unity mm-hmm. with Dr. Mary Healy. And um, while ecumenism might mean commissions and <clears throat> various uh, theologians getting together to work out the intellectual doctrinal differences, 
what really has to happen is the creation, as you were saying, Mary, of that atmosphere in which unity can be experienced between um, <clears throat> Christians of different traditions right now. Um, Catholics sometimes feel intimidated because they can't just invite a non-Catholic friend to come uh, receive Holy Communion with them. Um, mm-hmm. what, how would you advise them? Mm, yeah. Yes, it has to start at, at, at a prior level to that. Yeah. The Eucharist is the source and the summit of Catholic faith. It's not the initiation. It's, it's, That's it's right. not the first stage. Right. It's, it's the fullness. For those who have gone through the process of essentially courtship and falling in love and deciding to get married to the yeah. Lord in the Catholic Church. Yeah. So um, it's generally speaking not a helpful pastoral approach to uh, bring somebody who has no familiarity with Mass into Mass, but rather to to begin on a, a simpler level, a shallow end, as, as Archbishop Inverland calls it in Unleashing the Gospel, uh, some kind of faith environment, whether it's a home Bible study or even just a social event where people are freely talking about Jesus and praying together, praying with people, sharing on a personal level, building friendship, and from there, step by step, according to the proper stages, then you can bring someone closer into the heart of the Church. Mm-hmm. But as you were saying earlier, the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential for the unity of Christians. And yeah. in that beautiful passage from Ephesians 4 that you you just read, Paul ta- talks about the Holy Trinity. You might not see it right away, but he says, one Spirit, one Lord, yep. is Jesus, one yep. God and Father of us all. Yeah. So, so really the atmosphere of unity that you're talking about is rooted in the communion of God Himself, the Holy Trinity. There, there can be no unity that lasts that's simply built on a human sociological foundation. Right. It has right. to go so much deeper, and it's mm-hmm. something only God can do. And I just love to think of those early Christians in the upper room as they were waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit, and you just look at this motley crew and wonder how in the world are they ever going to be glued together as one church? I mean, we have a zealot who is a Jewish nationalist. Right, we have right. a tax collector who's a collaborator with the Romans. Yeah. We, we have a uh, you know, fiery temperament like Peter and a more contemplative temperament like John. Mm-hmm. And we have women and men who often didn't really associate in ancient Jewish society. And, you know, as, as the Church grows, we have slaves and free people. We, then we have Gentiles and Jews. How in the world is this going to work? Yeah. And as, as a friend of mine used to say, without the Holy Spirit, the Church wouldn't have lasted half an hour. Yeah. It, it was the Holy Spirit brings a, a self-knowledge, uh, an attitude of humility, of repentance, of, of washing one another's feet, of mutual service, of brotherly affection, knitting our hearts together in love, um, stepping more than halfway to meet the other person, um, counting others as more important than yourself. And that is not something that we can do on our own. 
And you see that even the early church struggled with those challenges. I mean, oh, you know, yeah. you see uh, in Galatians, Paul confronts Peter publicly and rebukes him. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, rightly, because not, not for any false doctrine, because of, but because of hypocrisy. Because right. He was not walking the walk. He, he was just talking the talk about um, unity and inclusion of the Gentiles. He was actually being kind of racially divisive there, ethnically divisive, and, and Paul called him on it. And that couldn't have been easy for Peter to take, but but history, you know, would suggest that they they overcame that disunity and and that they're put together for forever after by the church on the same feast day, yep. <laughs> the feast of Peter and Paul yep. in heaven. They've they've worked out their differences and <laughs> probably had a good laugh over them. Well, I mean, I, uh, it, we see in the church. It's awfully we, funny, we isn't it? Corinth, um, Oh, it's yeah. A, it's yeah. awfully funny, because you see Peter in, uh, I think it's Acts chapter 10, where really he's opening the door. <laughs> he's opening the door of the kingdom uh, to the Gentiles with uh, with Cornelius. Uh, and he's seeing the gift of the Holy Spirit that uh, Cornelius has received, and he's saying, how can we forbid this person baptism? So it's, it's just funny that in Acts we see Peter in that chapter as a pioneer in <clears throat> unity, yes, right. but apparently later in his career, he backs away from it a little bit. He backed and... <laughs> off. He, he got afraid. He, he he became fearful of human opinion. Right, right. And yeah. and there were factions in the church who didn't think that Jews and Gentiles should associate or eat together. Mm-hmm. So they had to hammer out. They had to they had to work through those things, and by the work of the Holy Spirit, they did. We see it in, in Corinth with. Um, Liturgical divisiveness between the, the richer and the poor. Right. We see it in the letter of James. It talks about a similar thing. So um, we can't look on the even the earliest days of the church as some kind of golden age where right. unity just happened. Right. No, they they had to work at it. They had to seek God. They had to sometimes get on their faces. They had to forbear with others. They they had to grow in understanding. They had to forgive. They had to repent, and all of those things that that we need to do today. And we very much need the Holy Spirit for them. That that's so important because in Pentecost, one of the things that uh, commentators on the event have offered is that in Pentecost we see uh, the reversal of the Tower of Babel where the languages were divided, at Pentecost, mm-hmm. uh, all of them, all people from, uh, with different language, different language groups, um, hear, the, hear the gospel in their own, or understand the gospel in their own language. Now, um, this requires, and you also hear this in testimony after testimony of people who have had um, powerful encounters with the Holy Spirit, that they, there's a certain love for humanity that emerges. Mm-hmm. Their, their yes, that's right. prejudices, their, you know, the way we were shaped in, in our growing up years, uh, the, where we make unnecessary divisions between us, racial, educational, economic divisions. The Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. I mean, it's really part of the work of redemption, isn't it? To yes, um, it really is. Tear those it's barriers and walls down. Yeah. Yes, yes, that's right. And th- that certainly has a relevance to everything that we're going through right now in our nation, you know, yeah. being convulsed by racial right. division. 
And yep. I, I can tell you two beautiful examples of how the Holy Spirit overcomes that. Yeah, go ahead. Um, both of them are, are deacon friends of mine. One is Deacon Johannes Fichtenbauer, who is a, okay. a deacon in the Archdiocese of Vienna, Austria. Okay. And he, uh, he he's always been Catholic, but um, he grew up very influenced by his grandfather, who was a Nazi. And his grandfather kind of imbued him from an early age with Nazi ideology. He, hmm. he grew up just being inculcated with uh, very anti-Semitic views. Um, but he was a fervent Catholic. He became a deacon. And at a, at a certain point, he was invited to participate in a, a dialogue that was going on between Catholics and Messianic Jews, Jews who had come to believe in Jesus. Hmm. And it was through his participation in that dialogue that he, for the first time, he really became aware of how deeply sinful his attitudes were toward Jews, how prejudiced he was, how much he had picked up from his upbringing that that was wrong and divisive. And he went through this tremendously painful but powerful process of conversion, of repenting and of forging deep friendships with these Jewish believers in Jesus. And I was at a beautiful symposium in Rome a couple of years ago when Deacon Johannes spoke on the podium with, her, with him were several Messianic Jewish rabbis and, and leaders. And as he told his story of how he had been influenced by Nazi ideology and how he had repented of that, and then the Jews told their story of how they had experienced uh, prejudice and discrimination, anti-Semitism. There was so much weeping, some of the translators in the translator booths couldn't even continue. They were crying so hard. Wow. Oh, it was a my. Holy Spirit movement. As we just saw how the Holy Spirit changes hearts. Wow. And another example is my, my dear friend, Deacon Larry Oney, who yeah. is a deacon in Louisiana, Yep, I do know. I do yeah, know, know. Yeah, <laughs> he's yeah. been here in the diocese of Lansing, yeah. speaking at our convocation, and wherever he speaks, he sets the room on fire. <laughs> and uh, he wrote a, a beautiful autobiography called "Amazing Grace." Amaz- sorry, "Amazed by God's Grace: Overcoming Racial Divides by the Power of the Holy Spirit." And he he talks about growing up with racism in the Deep South, living on a on a farm, working on the farm owned by a, a white owner, and um, the anger and the hatred that grew in his heart because of all the discrimination he experienced. And, you know, at one point he actually was about to join the Black Panthers, and then the Lord got a hold of him. Mm. And the Lord radically transformed him and made him into this loving, strong, courageous man who is not defined by what he experienced. It's not with anger and bitterness, but is a force for unity and building bridges. And mm. and it's just beautiful to see that. So you, you know, you can overcome the the causes of disunity on, on both sides, whether you're, you're a side that's been treated more unjustly or a side that's perpetrated more injustice. It's the Holy Spirit who overcomes that, and we need Him today. Amen. And we need to cry out to Him. Mary, thank you so much. Wonderful talking with you again. Great talking with you too, Al. Thanks. Dr. Mary Healy. I'm Al Cresta.